0: When Congress left for recess this month, it left lots of Defense Department questions up in the air. When it returns in September, it will have just a few short weeks before the end of the federal fiscal year. For an update, we turn to Bloomberg government's senior national security reporter, Roxana Tiron. Roxana, good to have you back.
1: Good to be with you, Tom.
0: And let's talk about something that people are wondering about legislatively, and that is continuing continued work with Ukraine with respect to stockpiles of weapons and the drawing down of what we've got and so forth. And what did Congress, quote unquote, say about that? And what's the status of that right now? Yes.
1: So it's it's a little bit of a tough situation. We're expecting a request from the Biden administration for another emergency supplemental for Ukraine and potentially other defense issues, you know, in the next few weeks by September, by the time Congress comes back. We're expecting him to ask for more money to help Ukraine with the counterinsurgency. It's a very critical time. The issues are very complicated on the Hill. You have a Republican-led House where um, a very small but intense majority opposes more aid to Ukraine. You have the Speaker of the House who has said he doesn't want to do another supplemental. But then on the other side, you have the Senate, the Democratic-led Senate, where in fact, the GOP and the, and the Democrats are hand in hand in agreement that they need to have another supplemental, potentially use that supplemental for other defense needs as well, targeted China, Taiwan as well. So So the situation is a little bit up in the air. The defense bills that have been written so far, we we are not in final stages for any of them. The defense bills that have been written so far only carry authorization for $300 million for the Ukraine Security Assistance Fund. That is obviously something that is always authorized in the defense authorization bill. It covers fiscal year 24, but it's not enough. And the, the Biden administration has said from the, from the very beginning, they can't tell how the war is going to turn out. It's a really tough to plan. A year ahead when they asked for the budget.
0: It reminds so, me so, almost of the debates over the old overseas contingency operations budgets.
1: Yes, it's just like that. Only the overseas contingency budget had a lot more support, I think, in the House than now Ukraine does. And I think that's going to be a tough issue because Kevin McCarthy enjoys a very, very small margin. You know, his speakership is, is tenuous at best, and he's had you know, his his group of Freedom Caucus, he's had to pull spending bills off the floor because his raucous Freedom Caucus uh, is trying to get even more spending cuts um, into effect. So sure. I think... I think it's going to be a very, very tough situation with a lot of people who believe in in helping Ukraine. There were a couple of amendments to the defense authorization bill in the House to try and cut off security aid for Ukraine. And you did see um, sort of huge bipartisan support. But there were 70 Republicans who voted to cut off aid. But there's enough
0: Democrats and enough Republicans left over to make sure that that would pass in the House.
1: If Kevin McCarthy brings it up. Okay, I think that's where it becomes a little tougher. He might not obviously have much of a choice, but it is a it's a risky proposition.
0: Yeah, because it has a lot of effect on the defense industrial base and on the strategy for supplying U.S. forces to restore what it is they have given up. So in some ways, that money to buy back from us what we need then would cascade over into the regular defense budget, I would think.
1: Yes, the Pentagon put out some numbers, actually. There's $20.5 billion committed to replacement of equipment that we have sent to Ukraine under the presidential drawdown authority. There's twenty five point nine billion already appropriated for that. That's just for replenishing the stocks that have been depleted by sending them to Ukraine. And then you also have the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. Right now that sixteen point four billion has been committed, a total of eighteen point six billion has been appropriated. So you you get a sense of the amounts we're talking about and the financial need that, sure. that goes behind this.
0: We're speaking with Roxana Tiron. She is senior national security reporter for Bloomberg Government. And getting to the NDAA, these two versions have passed their respective chambers, but they're mostly together, but there's one or two issues they're miles apart on. And then the funding bills, where does all of that stand? Let's talk about the NDAAs first.
1: The Senate for once actually passed its own version in the last few years. It has not been able to get it off the floor. Huge bipartisan support. The big difference, I think, um, obviously the funding level is the same. It stays within the, the you know deficit deal that, that President Biden and uh, Kevin McCarthy struck earlier this year. But the big issues here are um, basically uh, social policy issues. The House carries a, a ban on uh, the Pentagon's policy to allow for time off and, and travel, expenses for troops and their families who might seek an abortion or other reproductive help. And the Senate does not. The Senate didn't even touch that issue. The House also carries a ban on transgender health care. It tries to eliminate a lot of diversity, uh, equity and inclusion programs at the Pentagon. It's got a lot of a lot of these social culture war provisions that the Senate doesn't.
0: So can they be reconciled?
1: Yes, they can. And I did talk to the people who would be um, negotiating this. So chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mike Rogers, he's a Republican from Alabama, and Adam Smith, the Democrat from Washington. I, I talked to both of them and neither of them expects the policies that were passed in the House to actually end up in the final bill. The issue is not the negotiation over the final bill. The issue is whether the House will be able to pass it when it comes back, when it comes back in negotiated form, in conference report form. Because again, you run into you run into the problems that Kevin McCarthy has been having his entire speakership. He sure. doesn't have enough Republican. He needs he needs to pass bills with plenty of Republican support. And if these policies are out, he might not get that. So the question is. Is he going to just say, hey, we have, we've made our statements, but we do need to pass this very important bill. It's passed for 62 years in a row. This would be the 63rd. So that remains to be seen. They still have to appoint conferees to the bill. They haven't done that. They will officially do that in September. In the meantime, you know, staff is working behind the scenes. So that's technically worked out. But we have a huge we have a huge we have a very tough bridge to cross until we get there because we do have the threat of government spending expiring at the end of September. Right.
0: And so that brings us to the appropriations side of the negotiations. And they're not very close to there yet either, are they?
1: No. The Senate marked up all the bills in committee. Uh, There's a huge, uh, obviously, especially in defense and foreign policy, huge uh, funding difference. The Senate decided to go with emergency supplemental spending uh, to add more money so that they don't have to stick particularly to the um, that ceiling deal. The House is insisting. On, on cutting even more spending. And so they've not been able to get, other than the military construction and veterans affairs bill, which is usually a very, very easy pass, other than that bill that barely squeaked by, they were not able to pass any other bills on the floor. So they're coming back to to this Herculean task uh, to, to pass spending and then marrying them up with the Senate and negotiating a, a final spending agreements with the Senate. They only have 12 working days before government spending expires. So it's going to be a tough
0: situation. Roxana Tiron is senior national security reporter for Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for that analysis.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work
2: work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being
3: here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine.
2: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Aniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground. Because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people. Because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility, both as a union leader and as a pastor, to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both ways uh arena so so I've seen this you know as ministry as I've grown through the four decades of leading people putting those two together
2: is amazing a f g e handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting, it's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot. And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders gets me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause and, and and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain.
2: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and i, I got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in, uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people, right? Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union it, it, it's, it's needed uh, and you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me, uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And
2: it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes, and it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. So you,
3: yeah. Absolutely.
2: What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career?
3: You know, I don't know you asking for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, And it's membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today. That's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before. Mm -hmm. um, Is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today
3: it was my grandmother you know with the understanding that when and when I was born right as I said I was born in the deep south my father worked extremely hard we didn't have a whole lot you know my 12 siblings and so when I was born I was very sick a matter of fact doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old a doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job but my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt.
2: Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership.
0: Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.